and welcome to tonight's Zoomcast on Isaiah's Prophecy, chapters 36-37, the Ark Tyrant's War and the Deliverance of Zion. Starting in Isaiah 36, verse 1, using the Isaiah Institute's translation of Isaiah. <clears throat> in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, marched against the fortified cities of Judea and seized them. <clears throat> now, King Hezekiah is one of the metaphors who um, represents a historical precedent of the end-time servant. We have Hezekiah, who is the son of King Ahaz, Israel's or Judea's wicked king, Moses, um, King Cyrus, and Isaiah himself all stand as historical precedents for the end-time servant. And Sennacherib <coughs> is the king of Assyria and, you know, represents here the king of Assyria, king of Babylon. Or, you know, that end-time <coughs> entity who would amass to himself all political, economic, and military power and become the staff in the Lord's left hand to destroy the wicked and even the entire world. And it would only be through the intercession of the end time servant that a remnant would be saved and led out from bondage and destruction. And we will certainly see these themes played out in Isaiah 36 and 37. So in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, marched against all the fortified cities of Judea and seized them. Now, Judea in, you know, Isaiah's prophecy, you know, represents the Lord's, you know, elect people. And, you know, as we know from prophecy, before deliverance is given, um, God's people will come into bondage both spiritually and physically. And the spiritual bondage that Isaiah's um, prophecy alludes to is also prophesied by Nephi, both the spiritual and physical bondage. If we go to 1 Nephi chapter 14, And it shall come to pass, verse 1, that if the Gentiles, and by this time in the Book of Mormon, um, when Gentiles is referring to a people, it means the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And this is established actually in 1 Nephi chapter 13 at the end of the verse. When Nephi prophesies of the restoration of the gospel through Joseph Smith. And he says, I will be merciful unto the Gentiles in that day, insomuch that I will bring forth unto them in mine own power much of my gospel. And why does it say that the Lord will bring forth much of his gospel during Joseph Smith's first ministry? Because his ministry would be cut short, um, both spiritually and physically. Spiritually, when the Latter-day Saints would reject the fullness of the gospel 
and be demoted to the preparatory gospel. And then physically, because Joseph was uh, taken away early from the saints because they refused to repent and return. And in the parable of redemption of Zion, it's well, est <coughs> well established that Joseph would return shortly before the second coming of Jesus Christ to finish the restoration. And, you know, that's why when talking about his first ministry, it's referred to as much of my gospel, but then referring to his second ministry, verse 37, and blessed are they who shall seek to bring forth Zion at that day, the day when Joseph would return to finish the restoration and usher in the dispensation of the fullness of times, for they shall have the gift and power of the Holy Ghost. So it's in this day when Joseph would return and seek to bring forth and establish again Zion that First Nephi chapter 14 is talking about. And it shall come to pass that if the Gentiles or if the Latter-day Saints shall hearken unto the Lamb of God in that day, that he shall manifest himself unto them in word and also in power, in very we deed unto the taking away of their stumbling blocks, and harden not their hearts, the Latter-day Saints. If the Latter-day Saints do not harden their hearts against the fullness of the gospel, um, as set down and restored by Joseph in his second ministry, against the Lamb of God, they shall be numbered among the seed of thy father, and they shall be numbered among the house of Israel. And they shall be a blessed people upon the promised land forever, and they shall no more be brought down into captivity, and the house of Israel shall no more be confounded. So back to Isaiah chapter 36. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, marched against all the fortified cities of Judea and seized them. The inference the prophecy being the historical precedent as anti-metaphor that in the last days god's covenant people the latter-day saints and really all the branches of the restoration would have the king of assyria king of babylon march against them <clears throat> or in other words they would be um they would have destruction, you know, threatening them and would be in captivity before they would be delivered. Verse two, and the king of Assyria sent Rabashka with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he took up a position by the aqueduct of the upper reservoir on the road to the laundry plaza. Now, Jerusalem wasn't one of the cities that the king of Assyria, king of Babylon, seized, but he did seize many other cities in the southern kingdom during the reign of Hezekiah. Verse 3, and Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, overseer of the palace, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of 
Asaph, the record keeper, went out to him. So these you know, delegates of King Hezekiah go out to meet the king of Assyria um, via um, Rabashka, um, one of the king of Assyria's uh, men. And Rabashka said to them, the servants of King Hezekiah, please tell Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what grounds do you behave with such confidence? Now, this term, the great king, the king of Assyria, denotes that he is ruler over more than one king. And the end time context would be, you know, that man who takes unto himself all political, economic, and military power in the last days has many, quote unquote, kings or presidents of nations who rule under him and take orders from him. On what grounds do you behave with such confidence? Do you suppose that in war, mere words are sufficient tactics or show of strength? In whom have you put your trust? That you have rebelled against me? It is clear you depend on the support of Egypt, that splintered reed which enters and, pieces the, and pierces the palm of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. All right. Um, now, in Isaiah, Egypt is a metaphor of the United States of America. And elsewhere, you know, we find out that Egypt becomes a splintered reed, um, meaning those who rely upon the leadership and protection of the United States in the last days um, will find themselves abandoned and damaged. And there is a connection here with uh, the Lord's end time people and Egypt and the United States of America and that the Lord's end time people are, you know, putting their confidence um, falsely in the power of the United States of America to save them from the arch tyrant, when in reality, <clears throat> um, the leaders of Egypt are confederate with the king of Assyria, king of Babylon. But if you tell me, we rely on Jehovah our God. Is he not the one who shrines and altars Hezekiah abolished, telling Judea and Jerusalem to worship only at this altar? Okay, the anti-metaphor being that when the servant returns on the scene in the last days, the, the Davidic servant, the Davidic king, um, he will displace... those religious orders who claim 
to have the fullness of the gospel, but do not. And he will restore the true worship of Jehovah, or he will restore the doctrine of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the path of ascension. And the only way that men and women can be saved, the only way they can become sons and daughters of God. Um, but before, you know, his return and his opening again of the heavens, you know, there were many shrines and altars, as Isaiah puts it, you know, which were counterfeit representations of the fullness of the gospel. Verse 8. And now wager with my Lord, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to put riders on them. How then shall you repulse even one of the least of my Lord's servants, depending as you do on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Moreover, could I have marched against this land and destroyed it without Jehovah? For Jehovah told me to come against this land and destroy it. So the servants are trying to unnerve um, Hezekiah via his servants who are going to give him a full report. And, you know, one of the ways that he is trying to unnerve them is with the true information. If you think you can rely upon the power of Egypt to save you, you are sadly mistaken. Um, and that is absolutely true. Moreover, could I have marched against this land and destroyed it without Jehovah? For Jehovah told me to come out against this land and destroy it. All right. Now he has you know, parted with the portion of truth. And now he's saying that um, Hezekiah's and Judea's own God is against them. Um, however, it is true that God did allow the king of Assyria, king of Babylon, to rise to power and amass to himself um, might that was able to destroy the world. And it's true that he even allowed him to come out against the Lord's own people uh, because it would be a final test for them who would be true and faithful to their God <clears throat> versus who would capitulate in fear. And Hezekiah here is juxtaposed against his father, King Ahaz. Um, Isaiah was also sent to his father, King Ahaz, when Assyria threatened to um, destroy you know, his father's kingdom. And as I, Isaiah took the message, you know, do not fear the, the northern kingdom and Assyria. If you will trust in your God, um, you will be protected and you will be delivered. But Ahaz was unnerved. You know, he did not trust in God, but he put his trust in man. And um, 
He represents a segment of the Lord's people, those when the pressure was put upon them, when the threat of destruction loomed, would they take upon themselves the mark of the beast and capitulate to the king of Assyria, king of Babylon, or would they remain true and faithful to their God, even if they couldn't directly see exactly how the deliverance um, would be accomplished? And King Hezekiah is that end-time servant who does remain true and faithful and represents that section of the Lord's people who do remain true and faithful. But at the end of Isaiah 6, uh, we get some rough percentages, and only about 1% of the Lord's people are represented by the people of Hezekiah who are righteous, um, who indeed do wait upon the Lord through the instruction of King Hezekiah. And the people under King Ahaz represent about 90% of the Lord's people who capitulate under pressure. <clears throat> Verse 10, moreover, could I have marched against this land and destroyed it without Jehovah? For Jehovah told me to come against this land and destroy it. Verse 11, then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to Repshekah, please speak to your servants in Aramaic which we understand. Do not speak to us in Judean in the ears of the people who are on the wall. But Repshekah replied, did my Lord send me to say these things to you and to your Lord and not to the men sitting upon the walls with who you are to eat with who, who with you are to eat your own dung and drink your own urine. Meaning the plan is that the forces of the king of Assyria, king of Babylon, are going to lay siege um, around the city of Jerusalem. And they are going to be in a state of destitution and starvation. And the, the servants of the king of Assyria, king of Babylon, are, you know, again, trying to demoralize not only the direct uh, servants of King Hezekiah, but also the people. And, you know, this is certainly, you know, a metaphor that in the last days, the forces or the servants of the king of Assyria, king of Babylon, that arch tyrant, are going to try to demoralize God's people and tell them that it is hopeless. And one possible or one example of the fulfillment of um, Isaiah's prophecy would be um, our government and establishment, you know, spreading the word that the COVID-19 vaccine is required for their physical salvation. And then the capitulation of the leaders of the church in sending word to all the members of the church that they need to trust in government and in medical authorities that the vaccine is safe and effective when it had not been proven either. Uh, but in reality, a Trojan horse designed to destroy 
not only God's people, but the people of the entire world. And so the message of disinformation uh, was being spread to Hezekiah's people, you know, as it would be and has been to the Latter-day Saints. But Rabshakeh replied, did my Lord send me to say these things to you and to your Lord and not to the men sitting on the wall who with you are to eat your own dung and drink your own urine? Or in otherwise, we need to mobilize the people and they need to understand that their God will not deliver them or they are not to rely upon priesthood power. Um, for healing, but on the arm of flesh. Then Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in Judean, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah delude you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Jehovah by saying, Jehovah surely will save us. The city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Again, we have um, the message that um, as the fullness of the gospel is being proclaimed again to the Latter-day Saints, that there will be those who will cry foul, who will try to demoralize the people, who will try to discredit those who are sending forth the fullness of the gospel, both the end time servant when he returns on the scene, which he has not yet. And, you know, those who, um, you know, work with him. Verse 16, do not listen to Hezekiah. Thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by coming out to me. Or do not listen to the Lord's end time servant. Joseph, when he returns, thus says the end time king of Assyria, king of Babylon, make peace with me by coming out to me. Take upon yourselves the mark of the beast. Do not enter into the new and everlasting covenant of a broken heart and contrite spirit, for that will not save you. Your God will not save you, but trust in the arm of flesh. Continuing in 16. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and his own fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come back and take you to a land like your own. A land of grain and wine, a land of grain fields and vineyards. For it was the pattern of the king of Assyria, king of Babylon, or at least the king of Assyria. When he conquered a people, he would displace them and replace and inhabit their cities with other peoples that he had conquered. And he would move the people that he had conquered to other cities. And he is promising them sufficiency and even opulence, but he's letting them know there's going to be a sacrifice that they will have to make for <coughs> the protection of the king of Assyria. Verse 18, beware lest Hezekiah mislead you 
by saying Jehovah will save us. Were any gods of the nations able to save their lands out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Seraphim? Did they deliver Samaria out of my hand? Who of all the gods of those countries saved his land from my hand? But Jehovah should save Jerusalem from my hand. Or in other words, none of the gods of all the other peoples whom the king of Assyria overtook prevented the king of Assyria from taking them over. So how can you possibly think that your God, Jehovah, has the power to save you? And this is ironic because we're going to see at the end of 37 that exactly that takes place. And not only does Jehovah save them, but he destroys the king of Assyria, and his forces. Verse 21. But they remained silent, replying nothing, for the king had commanded them not to answer him. So this has an allusion to the end times, that those who will be preserved from the destructive power of the king of Assyria, king of Babylon, will hearken unto the advice and counsel of the end-time servant. And by entering into covenant with Jehovah, their God, even Jesus Christ, that deliverance will come. And that those who receive deliverance are those who enter into covenant with their God, which covenant and the knowledge of that covenant is restored by the end-time servant. Um, and how is it restored? It's restored because he opens again the heavens. He ushers in the dispensation of the fullness of time. And the new covenant of a broken heart contrite spirit becoming the sons and daughters of Christ through the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and thus qualifying to be instructed about how to enter into the rest of the Lord. Then Eliakim, verse 22, the son of Hilkiah, overseer of the palace, Shebna, the secretary, and Joha, the son of Asaph, the record keeper, went to Hezekiah with their clothes rent and reported to him the things uh, Rabshakeh had said. Um, you know, again, the rending of clothes is an end-time metaphor and symbol that those who were true and faithful to the covenant, um, were true and faithful in that they offered up the sacrifice of a broken heart and contrite spirit. Throughout the Book of Mormon, Book of Mormon prophets admonish the end-time Gentiles, the Latter-day Saints, to repent. And the instruction about how to repent is to offer up the sacrifice of a broken heart and contrite spirit. And we're going to find out that not only are the servants um, true and faithful in entering into and living this covenant, um, but so is King Hezekiah, who represents the end-time servant. Isaiah 37, verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard it, 
He rent his clothes and put on sackcloth and entered in the house and entered the house of Jehovah. So Hezekiah did exactly as he should have done. Um, he is now in a state of subjection and humble reverence before his God in attempting to intercede for and save his people, you know, through the proper worship and intercession um, of a king for his people. And, you know, King Hezekiah is one of the Davidic kings or the kings of the southern kingdom, kingdom, the king of Judah um, in the succession after King David, with whom um, God originally set up, you know, this covenant. And he sent Eliakim, the overseer of the palace, Shebna, the secretary, and the elders of the priests in sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. The implication being that, um, again, he is submitting his will to God's will. And, you know, having entered into, you know, the house of Jehovah, you know, receiving by revelation that he needed to seek out the help of Isaiah. And this is an interesting chapter because both Isaiah and Hezekiah are both end-time uh, metaphors for the end-time servant. And because no single historical precedent was an adequate um, precedent, um, the Lord used through the prophecy of Isaiah multiple um, historical precedents, each to um, symbolize a different aspect of the power and deliverance of the end-time Davidic servant. Verse 5, And when King Hezekiah's servants came to Isaiah, they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a woeful day, a day of reproof and disgrace. Children have reached the point of birth, but there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that Jehovah your God has heard the words of Rabshakeh, whom his Lord, the king of Assyria, has sent to scorn the living God and will rebuke him for the things Jehovah your God has heard. Were you to offer a prayer on behalf of the remnant that is left? Well, the king of Assyria has taken over many of the lands and cities of King Hezekiah. And here we have an escalation. This also represents um, the ascension of the end time servant, that he doesn't start out when he returns at the highest spiritual level, but that as he is preparing to come on the scene, um, he himself is following the path of ascension. 
In fact, because he follows the path of ascension, he in fact opens again the heavens and he makes it possible for God's people to also embark on the path of ascension and do as he did. And so King Hezekiah represents, you know, a level of spiritual ascension and Isaiah represents a higher level of spiritual ascension, both representative of the end time servant. Thus says Hezekiah, this is a woeful day, a day of reproof and disgrace. So again, we have the concept that God's people are in a state of bondage and darkness. Um, and that there is desperate need for delivery, and that there are servants who will intercede for God's people and plead their case um, that their Lord God might have mercy upon them and deliver them from the bondage that they find themselves in. Children have reached the point of birth but there is no strength to deliver them. Well, what happens if a child reaches the point of birth, but the mother has no ability to birth them, then both the mother and the child die. So that is how perilous the situation is. All of God's people are going to die if the Lord doesn't intervene. It may be that Jehovah, your God has heard the words of Rabshakeh, whom his Lord, the King of Assyria, has sent to scorn the living God and will rebuke him for the things Jehovah your God has heard. Were you to offer up prayer on our behalf of the remnant that is left? So, not everyone survives, but we have the survival of that portion who will hearken unto. Um, the fullness of the gospel as restored through the end time server. Verse six, and Isaiah said to them, tell your Lord, King Hezekiah, thus says Jehovah, be not afraid because of the words with which you have heard the king of Assyria's subordinates ridicule me. See, I will give him a nation to return home upon hearing a rumor, or I will give him a notion to return home upon hearing a rumor, and will cause him to fall by a sword in his own land. And the sword in Isaiah usually represents the king of Assyria, king of Babylon. Um, in this case, it represents the Lord's own end time servant. Well, you know, how does the Lord? or end-time servant um, work out destruction. We have a model in Helaman chapter 10 as Nephi is having the second order of Melchizedek priesthood sealed upon him, just as the end-time servant will have before he comes on the scene, just as Moses had before <laughs> He was sent in to Pharaoh. In Helaman 10, verse 6, Behold, thou art Nephi, and I am God. 
Behold, I declare it unto thee in the presence of mine angels, that ye shall have power over this people, that ye shall smite the earth with famine and with pestilence and destruction, according to the wickedness of this people. Verse 10, and if you shall say that God shall smite this people, it shall come to pass. And now behold, I command you that ye shall go and declare unto this people, that thus saith the Lord God, who is almighty, except you repent, he shall be smitten even unto destruction. Well, here, through Revelation, um, Isaiah is sealing destruction upon the king of Assyria. And when does this happen um, in the last days? It happens at the very end of the uh, day of the Lord, immediately before Christ comes in his glory. That's when the end time servant, you know, finally takes down the king of Assyria, king of Babylon, and uh, he is destroyed. Verse 8. And when Rabshakeh heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, he withdrew and found him fighting against Libna. Now, Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria, received a report that Terhaka, king of Cush, had sent out to fight against him. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah telling them, now, Sennacherib received a report that Taraka, king of Cush, had sent out to fight against him. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, telling them, Speak thus to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Let not your God in whom you trust delude you into thinking that Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So, when the king of Assyria receives word that he needs to go fight another battle um, before he leaves um, his planned siege of Jerusalem. You know, he sends a letter to King Hezekiah, letting him know, um, you know, do not think because I am temporarily leaving that um, you will not be taken over and you will not be um, put into, you know, subjection and destruction. So again, we have an attempt to demoralize um, God's people on the eve of destruction. You know, will they or will they not wait upon the Lord and be true and faithful, or will they be paralyzed with fear and um, submit themselves to the king of Assyria? Now, Sennacherib received a report that. Taraka, king of Cush, had sent out to fight against him, okay, exactly according to the prophecy of Isaiah. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, telling them, speak thus to Hezekiah, king of Judah, let not your God in whom you trust delude you into thinking that Jerusalem shall not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. You yourself had heard what the king of Assyria have done, annexing all lands. Shall you then escape? Did the gods of the nations of my fathers destroy, deliver them? Did they deliver Gozan and Haran and Rez and Edenites and Telassar? Where are the kings of Hamath and Arpad and the kings of the cities of Seravim 
and Hena and Eva. And Hezekiah received the letter from the messenger and read it. Then Hezekiah went up to the house of Jehovah and unrolled it before Jehovah. And Hezekiah prayed to Jehovah and said, O Jehovah of hosts, God of Israel, who sits enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. It is you who made the heavens and the earth. Jehovah, give ear and hear. O Jehovah, open your eyes and see. Listen to all the words of Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. O Jehovah, the king of Assyria, have indeed destroyed all peoples and their lands, committing their gods to the fire. Now, fire here in Isaiah is a metaphor for the end-time destructive power of the king of Assyria, king of Babylon. And only part of Isaiah's prophecy has so far been fulfilled, um, that he would be drawn away, but the part of the prophecy where the king of Assyria would die has not yet been fulfilled. So this is testing King Hezekiah. How true and faithful will he be when the destruction of his people um, is still being threatened by the king of Assyria? For they were no gods, but mere works of men's hands, of wood and of stone. And so they could destroy them. But now, O Jehovah our God, deliver us out of his hand, that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone are Jehovah. <clears throat> you know, this also shows the responsibility of those who are to minister are to become the co-saviors with Christ of their people. And they are to plead their people's case before God and do all their power to seek the Lord's deliverance for their people. And, you know, what Hezekiah is not demonstrating is um, smugness or a sense of entitlement. He understands that he must do all in his power in submitting his will to the Lord's, in interceding for his people that they might be delivered. Um, and in fact, the people's very deliverance is dependent on uh, the degree to which King Hezekiah will act as an intercessor for his people. You know, we see a similar theme in DNC 103. God is speaking to the end time servants, and he is giving them a warning. Starting in verse 7. And by hearkening to observe all the words which I, the Lord their God, shall speak unto them, they shall never cease to prevail until the kingdoms of the world are subdued under my feet. And the earth is given unto the saints to possess it forever and ever. But inasmuch as they keep not my commandments and hearken not to observe all my words, the kingdoms of the world shall prevail against them. For they were set to be a light unto the world and to be the saviors of men. And inasmuch as they are not the saviors of men, they are as salt that has lost its savor and is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. And so... 
the the danger that Hezekiah and his people are in is very real. Um, but the promise that the Lord has given to them cannot be broken if they will be true and faithful to him. Um, their Lord and their God and all the commandments which he shall give them. Verse 18, again. O Jehovah, the kings of Assyria have indeed destroyed all peoples. You know, look how he is almost acting as an attorney, pleading the case of his people before a judge. And their lands, committing their gods to the fire. <clears throat> For they were no gods, but mere works of men's hands, of wood and stone. And so they could be, and so they could destroy them. But now, O Jehovah, our God, deliver us out of his hand, that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone are Jehovah. <clears throat> Verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says Jehovah, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is what Jehovah has spoken against him. The virgin daughter of Zion holds you in contempt. She laughs you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem shakes her head at you. Now, just as previously, you know, we had the metaphors of ascension of the servant, um, Hezekiah and Isaiah. So here we have the metaphors of the ascension of God's people. Um, the, the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem, you know, is at, you know, the level of King Hezekiah, while the virgin daughter of Zion is at, you know, the, you know, corresponding level of Isaiah. So not only is the servant ascending and what he is, the challenge that he is facing, allow his ascension, so do the challenges that the people face. And as they stay true to their God in the midst of even overwhelming opposition and threat of destruction, it allows the humble followers of Christ to ascend up the spiritual ladder. The virgin daughter of Zion holds you in contempt. She laughs you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem shakes her head at you. You know, this is part of the message that Isaiah delivers to Hezekiah regarding what Jehovah has said about the king, the king of Assyria. Verse 23. Whom have you mocked and ridiculed? Against whom have you raised your voice? Lifting your eyes to high heaven against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants, you have blasphemed my Lord. You thought on account of my vast charioty. I have conquered the highest mountains, the farthest reaches of Lebanon. I have felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I have reached its loftiest summits, its finest forest. Um, or in other words, the king of Assyria, has actually been allowed by God 
you know, by this point to destroy, you know, practically the entire world. And he thinks that, you know, what he has been able to do is of his own power and his own strength, when in reality, um, he was allowed to do what he did to destroy the wicked, um, you know, because the Lord Jehovah allowed it, um, but he is boasting in his own strength. Verse 24, by your servants, you have blasphemed my Lord. You know, as we read in Isaiah 36, when uh, king of Assyria sent his servants to talk to the servants of Hezekiah and try to demoralize them and the people. And again, he sent a written communication to Hezekiah to demoralize and threaten him. By your servants, you have blasphemed, blasphemed my Lord. You thought on account of my vast chariotry, I have conquered the highest mountains, the farthest reaches of Lebanon. I have felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I have reached its loftiest summits, its finest forest. I have dug wells and drunk of foreign waters. With the soles of my feet, I have dried up all Egypt's rivers. Okay, again, <clears throat> you know, by this time, um, the king of Assyria, you know, has put the uh, Egypt or the United States into a state of destitution. And he has not faced any opposition, which he has not been able to overcome. And remember, in Isaiah, trees represent people, you know, forest cities, uh, mountains, nations. So with that understanding, I have conquered the highest mountains or the mightiest nations on the earth, the farthest reaches of Lebanon. Okay. You know, the cedars of Lebanon, you know, anciently, um, you know, God's most elect people. I have felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I have reached its loftiest summit, its finest for us. I've dug wells and drunk of foreign waters. With the soles of my feet, I have dried up all of Egypt's rivers. Have you not heard how I ordained this thing long ago? How in the days of old I planned it? Okay, this is again the Lord responding to the threats of the king of Assyria saying, you know, do you not know the prophecies? Do you not know the scriptures? Um, your conquests, your rise to power have all been prophesied. And one of the ironic things is um, this, pro this prophecy is even primarily in the book of Isaiah, that the end time arc tyrant would be allowed this work of destruction. Have you not heard how I ordained this thing long ago, how in days of old I planned it? Now I have brought it to pass. You were destined to demolish fortified cities, turning them into heaps of rubble. 
while their timorous inhabitants shrank away in confusion, becoming as wild grass transiently green or like weeds on a roof that scorch before they grow up. But I know where you dwell and your comings and your goings and how stirred up you are against me. And because of your snortings and bellowings against me, which have mounted up to my ears, I will put my ring in your nose and my bit in your mouth and turn you back by the way you came. So just as God's people are ascending up the spiritual ladder, even the end time servant himself, so is the king of Assyria descending the spiritual ladder and going from the powerful, um, the most powerful men on the earth, with the exception of the end time servant, <clears throat> to an animal to be led about by a ring in his nose and a bit in his mouth and turn you back the way you came. Verse 30. But to you, this shall be a sign. This year, eat what grows wild and the following year, what springs up of itself. But in the third year, sow and harvest, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. So the Lord has changed who he is addressing or who he was talking about. Um, talking about the coming destruction of the king of Assyria. Um, now he's talking to King Hezekiah. And the king of Assyria has made the world desolate. But this is an allusion to the gathering out of God's people, you know, from bondage and leading them on an exodus. And that on the exodus, there will be plenty. And that the exodus is going to culminate with establishing New Jerusalem. Um, verse 30 again, let's unpack this. But to you, Hezekiah, this shall be a sign. <clears throat> just as he gave a sign to Hezekiah's father. And what was the sign that was given to Hezekiah's father? Um, King Ahaz, well, the birth of a son, King Hezekiah. But the sign that he gives to Hezekiah is a sign of deliverance and one of sufficiency during deliverance. This year, eat what grows wild. So it's not going to be um, in a place of cultivation. The Lord will provide for you as he provided for the children of Israel under Moses manna to eat. And the following year, what springs up of itself. So he's going to be going into a protracted period of a journey into the wilderness um, this symbolizes the end-time exodus. <clears throat> but in the third year, sow and harvest, or the culmination of this end-time exodus, is going to be <coughs> excuse me, um, the establishment of New Jerusalem 
and in New Jerusalem, um, you will prosper and you'll be sustained by um, that which comes from the establishment of that holy city. And you will no longer be traveling through the wilderness, um, but um, you will again plant crops and sow and harvest, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Verse 31, the remnant of the house of Judah that survives shall once more take root below and bear fruit above. Okay, the remnant of the house of Judah that survives. Again, we have the illusion that it will only be a remnant who will survive. Um, most of the people will not make it. But that remnant who does, who does survive um, shall once more take root below and bear fruit above. Um, or be planted in a new land and bring forth fruit. So bringing forth good fruit is used throughout scripture. And in most cases, it has reference to becoming sons and daughters of Jesus Christ through the baptism of fire, baptism, Holy Ghost. And not only is it bearing fruit, but also taking root, meaning continuing the path of ascension and entering into the rest of the Lord, which is the requirement to enter into New Jerusalem. Verse 32, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and from Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of Jehovah of hosts will accomplish it. Now, what is Mount Zion? Let's go to DNC 84. Verse 2. Yea, the word of the Lord concerning his church established in the last days for the restoration of his people. Well, the restoration of his people first among the Latter-day Saints, who must be restored to the fullness of the gospel. And second, they who receive the fullness of the gospel among his people will then take the fullness of the gospel to gather Israel. As he has spoken by the mouth of his prophets, and for the gathering of his saints to stand upon, stand upon Mount Zion, which shall be the city of New Jerusalem, which city shall be built beginning at the temple lot, which is appointed by the finger of the Lord in the western boundaries of the state of Missouri, and dedicated by the hand of Joseph Smith Jr. and others with whom the Lord was well pleased. Verily, this is the word of the Lord that the city New Jerusalem shall be built by the gathering of the saints. Now, that did not pertain to Joseph Smith's first ministry, but it does pertain to a second. Beginning at this place, even the place of the temple, which temple shall be reared in this generation. So what generation is the Lord talking about? The generation in which Joseph would return to finish the restoration, lead the exodus, and in which New Jerusalem would be built and established. So for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and from Mount Zion, a band of survivors. 
What does that mean? Out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and from Mount Zion, a band of survivors. <coughs> well, first, that's who survive to inhabit New Jerusalem. And when old Jerusalem becomes again a holy city, old Jerusalem. And once New Jerusalem is established, a remnant, a band of survivors, those who were led to establish New Jerusalem by the end-time servant, who while on that journey, like the end-time servant before them, have ascended to the level of kings and priests um, of the Most High God, having the patriarchal order of Melchizedek priesthood sealed upon them, will be sent out from New Jerusalem to finish the gathering of Israel and even to the Jews, that there might be a separation of wheat and tares among the Jews, that old Jerusalem might be established again as a holy city. And the zeal of Jehovah of hosts will accomplish it, zeal being a metaphor for the Lord's end-time servant. Verse 33. Therefore, thus says Jehovah concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He shall not advance against it with armor, nor erect siege works against it. By the way he came, he shall return. He shall not enter this city, says Jehovah. I will protect this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Or in other words, in the end times, even though the king of Assyria, king of Babylon, will seek to destroy both New Jerusalem and Old Jerusalem, again, a holy city, um, and without the direct intervention of Christ would be able to do so, because of the direct intervention of Jesus Christ, he will not be able to do so, although he is able to destroy the rest of the world. And what is the reasoning? I will protect this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. Who's the end time servant. Um, so, you know, often we're criticized, you know, about speaking of the Lord's end time servant and you know, his work in restoring the fullness of the gospel and leading the end time exodus. And, you know, to those who level this criticism, I would just say that uh, it's the Lord who speaks of his end time servant. And those who survive, um, it will be because of both the Lord's own sake and for the sake of the end time servant who acts as an intercessor for God's people and suffers for them and does what is required of him that he might be a deliverer. Verse 36. Then the angel of Jehovah went out and slew a hundred and eighty-five thousand in the Assyrian camp. And when men arose in the morning, there lay all their dead bodies. Well, no wonder this was a test of God's people to see if they would be valiant 
in the face of overwhelming opposition. Um, 185,000 warriors sent to destroy God's people. And the Lord, on the eve of destruction, proved that he would save his people. And this is a theme that is recapitulated. Um, For the Lord proves that he will save his people the first time as he delivers them out of Babylon. And the end time uh, exodus commences. And then a second time, um, as they are ascending up the spiritual ladder um, from an even more direct and overwhelming threat of destruction. Verse 37. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew, and he returned to Nineveh, where he dwelt. And as he (coughs) was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his god, his sons Adramlech and Sherezer, slew him with a sword and fled to the land of Ararat, and his son Ashradon succeeded him as king. So finally, we see the complete fulfillment of the prophecy given by Jehovah to Isaiah, Isaiah to Hezekiah, that he would indeed deliver his people and destroy the king of Assyria and his forces, which threatened their destruction. And just as the Lord... um, delivered from both uh, bondage and destruction, his people anciently. So is his, you know, offer to deliver his people in the latter days extended to us. If we will enter into covenant and keep it with him. And the covenant that he asks us to enter into is very specific. It's the covenant of a broken heart and contrite spirit which at a bare minimum means that we put everything upon the altar and would hold nothing back. But specifically, just as Hezekiah received specific instruction from the Lord, so must we as to the terms of the covenant, which is individual to us. And by hearkening to keep all the words, which our Lord will give to us by revelation and by those servants who are sent out to deliver from bondage and destruction. Um, We like Israel before us will be delivered from bondage and destruction and will inherit the goodly land or establish new Jerusalem in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.